I, uh, if you know me, you know, I love kids. Um, I, I love this time of interaction. I've just always been uh, drawn to kids. That doesn't mean my own kids don't annoy me sometimes and other kids annoy me sometimes, but I, I love kids. And, and one of the things that you, you learn about kids very early on as a parent is that you have no idea sometimes what is going to come out of their mouth, which is a, a danger sometimes, right, you know, with, with opening things up. But um, there's also some funny things that come out of their mouth, and uh, I, 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 I've learned also very early on that you have to watch what you say around your kids, even if it's not necessarily bad, um, because they're going to repeat it, right? And usually they're going to repeat it at the time you least want them to repeat it, when there are the most people around, or when maybe you said something about someone that they actually go and tell that someone, you know, anybody experienced that? I'm just going to take that as a yes, that you probably have have had that before. Not necessarily a bad thing, but um, that you said about them, but just maybe you didn't want them to hear that. So uh, sometimes things that can come out of their mouths that maybe you didn't want to. Sometimes there are great truths that come out of kids' mouths. And uh, I, I like some of the things that I, I was reading recently, um, not necessarily a truth, but just funny things that come out of the mouths of kids. Like one six-year-old boy asked his dad, he said, Dad, can we get a cat? And dad said, well, son, your mom's allergic to cats, and so we're not going to get a cat. And the son said, well, when mom dies, can we get a cat? So I, you know. Or when a mom and her three-year-old daughter were talking about owls, owls, and her mom was explaining to owls, or explaining to her daughter that owls are nocturnal, and her daughter looked up with her, like this duh mom look, and she said, of course, mommy, everyone knows that owls are not turtles. (laughs) I love that. Uh, I heard another story about a granddaughter who asked her grandpa, grandpa, how old are you? And grandpa said, well, I'm 59, and she said, little girl said, well, so that means next year you'll be she had to do some math in her head real quick. She was kind of young. She said, so that means next year you'll be 60. And grandpa said, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, good job. And the granddaughter said, after that, you'll be dead. So, you know, I guess life ends after 60. I don't know. Some of you may be able to comment on that. But sometimes you just never know what's going to come out of the mouths of children, right? And out of those little mouths can oftentimes come some great truths, sometimes a little too much truth, but nevertheless, truths. And speaking of that idea of great truths coming out of small packages, I want us to look today at a often overlooked and very small book in the Bible uh, called Haggai. We're going to be spending the rest of our time today in Haggai. Uh, I've debated on whether to start a new series this week or move to one when I get back, and so I'm just going to do a one-off series today or one-off lesson today, and then when I get back we'll start a, a new series after um, Pete preaches for a couple of weeks. But today I want to look at what is a very small book, an often overlooked book of, of Haggai. I'll give you a few moments if you want to flip there in your Bibles or it's a little bit probably easier in your phone to find that, but the book of Haggai is actually the second smallest book in the Old Testament. It's the sixth smallest book overall in the Bible. It's not quite as we as uh, Zacchaeus that we sang about, but it is very, very small. Uh, two chapters, 38 verses, uh, just three pages in my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours. By contrast, we just spent some time in the book of Matthew walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the book of Matthew, which we just got through studying, has just about as many verses as Haggai has words, okay? So just to give you a, a you know, full context, in the Sermon on the Mount that we just looked at and we spent some time in, uh, has, it's about the same size as the book of Haggai, maybe actually a little bit more. And yet this little book 
has some powerful truths contained within it on how God calls us to live, especially in the days and times in which we live in our country and in our world. So who was Haggai? Well, we don't know much about Haggai. He was a prophet. He's uh, what we would refer to as a minor prophet, and that doesn't mean that he's less important or that the minor prophets were less important. That just means they wrote less. So the major prophets wrote more material. Minor prophets wrote less material. Haggai is most noted for what he did with the Jewish people around 520 BC, when through him God delivered what many Bible scholars consider to be one of the greatest prophetic messages in all of the Bible. In 586 BC, the Jewish people were captured. They were taken into captivity. The city was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then about 50 years later, they were allowed to return to their home. And what they found was a city in ruins, completely destroyed. Nothing was left. And so at the time of Haggai, that's where God's people were. That's what they saw. That was what they experienced. They'd just been in captivity, and now what they come back to is in utter ruins. So what were they to do? What would we do? What would you do? Well, the only thing you really can do, you start to rebuild. And so God begins to speak through the prophet Haggai, and listen to what he says, starting in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. These people, God says. Now, I can remember when I was younger, and maybe some of you can remember this too, uh, when my mom would be home with us and uh, my dad would come home and, and she would say something to the effect of, you won't believe what your son did today. You ever done that? You know, and, and instantly I, I no longer was necessarily her son or their son, but I was my dad's son in that moment, right? She was disconnecting herself from my behavior in a way to, to say, I, you know, I, I don't like what your son is doing, and, and suddenly it's all my, my dad's fault. Uh, Marcy's done that a time or two with uh, our kids, especially one of them. I'll let you figure out which one. <laughs> but here in Haggai, that's kind of what God is doing. He's disconnecting himself from his people because of the way that they were living and the choices they were making. The people he often refers to as his people, my people. Here he says, these people, because he's so frustrated with how they're living their lives. He's frustrated with their attitude. He's disgusted with the way that they are, you know, the things that they're doing and, and the, the priorities that they're having and the things that they're not doing, as we'll talk about in just a second. And God doesn't even really want to recognize them as his people in this moment. And so from there, the prophet Haggai begins what is basically a four-part sermon series that we're going to crunch into a one-day, one-week series uh, for the Jewish people that God desires for them to learn and for us to learn as well. And the first message that Haggai shares is this, prioritize what's important. He says, I want you to prioritize what is important. You see, the people had started to rebuild, but the problem is they had started in the wrong place. The people are saying, it's not time to rebuild God's house just yet. It's time to rebuild our stuff and do what we want to do, but it's not quite time to rebuild God's house just yet. In other words, we've got things that we feel are more important, and we need to take care of those things, and then we'll get to the other things that are not as high on our priority list. They, in essence, allowed what was urgent, at least in their minds, to take priority over what was truly important. And listen to how Haggai addresses the excuse that the people give for not wanting to rebuild the Lord's temple. Verse 4, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, remains a ruin? In other words, you have the time and the means to do what you want to do, but when it comes time to God, well, not so much. Of course, we, we never fall victim to that, so we'll just assume it's just the, these people in this period of time that are operating in that way. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. You can hear the frustration in God's words because he loves his people so much and he wants them to love him so much too. There's hurt from God in this message. All he wants is for for them to put him in his rightful place, for him to get first priority in their lives. And God makes it very clear that when he's not first priority, he is not pleased. And nothing in life will bring contentment when he is not first priority. Nothing will bring fulfillment when he's not at the top of our list. Nothing will ever be enough when God is not first priority. And God says, give careful thought to your ways. You know, we go through life so much that we don't give careful thought to a whole lot of things because we're so busy and we're so rushed. And God says, just, I want you to step back and give careful thought to your ways. It's a phrase he uses over and over again. In other words, you might want to think about taking a good look in the mirror and examining your life and your actions. Skip down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So here's the good news. Following Haggai's sermon, the people respond. The Lord stirs up this spirit of, of desire within them, within them to go out and start building, a spirit of motivation that they had not had up until this point. For 16 years, they had stared at the ruins of that temple. 16 years. It's not just a few days or weeks or months. This is 16 years they'd stared at the ruins of the temple as they built their own houses. For 16 years, God longed for his people to rebuild his temple, his house. And finally, in around 520 B.C., the people prioritize what's important and begin to rebuild the temple. So that's Haggai's first message, to prioritize what is important. That's a good message for us to hear, but he's not done. And in chapter 2, he launches into his second message, and it's this. Put aside your differences. Not just prioritize what's important, but we need to put aside our differences and those things that may divide us. Haggai chapter 2, verse 2, God says to Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like 
nothing. Now, if you know much about history, you know that the original temple was built by a man by the name of King Solomon. He was the third king of Israel before the kingdoms divided, and we won't get into that too much. Um, But he was the son of David, and, and David asked God if he could build a temple. God said, no, you're too much blood on your hands, but I will give that responsibility to your son. And so Solomon, under his reign, the temple uh, of, of, of God is, is built, and it stood for a long time until the Babylonian uh, captivity came, and, and it was absolutely magnificent. It was beautiful. You go back and read how it was built and all the things that went into it. But now, 66 years later, it's, it's in ruins. And the people are looking at the rebuilding of the foundation of that temple. Not even the temple, but the foundation of that temple. And only those who were much, much older and still living, but much, much older, could remember what the former temple and all of its glory looked like. The book of Ezra actually talks about this story and helps to shed some light on what's happening here in Haggai. Here's what Ezra says in Ezra chapter 3. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy. I find this so interesting. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. And so just to kind of summarize, on one hand, you've got the older generation who remember what the temple was and all of its glory. And when Solomon first built it and, and, and all that went into that, and it's just an, an immaculate uh, building and, and a beautiful monument to, to God and his house. And they remember that. And now they're looking at this foundation that's being rebuilt, but they're kind of disappointed. It's like, you know, if you're older, like, back in the day, back in my day, you know, and, 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 and they're looking back and saying, it's just, it's never going to measure up to, to what it once was. I mean, think about what it used to be. It wasn't King Solomon's temple. And then on the other hand, you have the younger generation who never saw Solomon's temple, except for now what is in ruins, and yet they're rejoicing and they're shouting because of what they thought the temple could become. At least the temple's being rebuilt now, right? I mean, yeah, it's not quite there, and maybe it's not going to look exactly like Solomon's temple, but at least it's being rebuilt. We're just happy it's being rebuilt. Both have their own way of thinking things should be and viewing things in the way they are and ought to be, and it's becoming kind of divisive. It's becoming your camp over here and the other camp over here. By the way, I find it interesting that Ezra, Ezra says, I mentioned this, you couldn't distinguish the weeping from the shouts of joy. And in the end, it's all just a bunch of noise. And I can't help but wonder if that's a pretty good synonym for what our divisiveness looks like at times within the church, right? That it's just a bunch of noise to the world around us when we don't love each other and get along and work to the glory of God, that we're just making a bunch of noise. And so Haggai chapter 2, verse 4, listen to what God says to his people. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God's message is simple. Be strong. Work together. Stop worrying. I'm with you. God doesn't say, young people, let the older people have their way because, you know, um, they've been around a whole lot longer. Nor does he say, older people, let the younger people have their way because, you know, they're the next generation and so you just need to give way and, and, and let them. In the midst of a divided people, God says, cut it out, get along, and start building my temple. 
Don't, don't worry about getting your way. Worry about God getting his way. Worry about God being glorified and honored. And 2,500 years later, I think God is calling us to that very same thing. What if we listened to what God said and we heeded the message of Haggai when he says, stop letting things divide you. Stop letting those things that you think are so important divide you. Start focusing on what is truly important and start doing God's work together. And he'll be with you. He will be with you. That's it. Really simple message. Do his work, get along, and he will be with us. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. God says this, this place, this temple, if you want to say this church building, whatever you want, it's not about you. It's about me. Not me. God's saying this. It's about him. And the current temple is going to be greater than the past temple, but it's not going to be because of the design, and it's not going to be because of the gold or the silver. The reason it's going to be great is because of me, because of God. Because I am the Lord God Almighty, and I'm what makes this place holy. And in my presence, you will find peace. Peace with me and peace with each other. And so prioritize what's important. Put aside your differences. Then Haggai's third message to the people. Purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. Listen to what Haggai says, and God says through Haggai in chapter 2, verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, well, no. Then Haggai said, well, okay, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now I know that's, that seems a little bit hard for us to try and wrap our minds around. Okay, it's defiled if it touches this, it's not defiled if it touches that. What, what, what is God trying to do here? The main thing, idea that God is trying to get through Haggai and through to his people is that sin and impurity spreads. Sin and impurity spreads contaminates. Sin will not be idle. It will keep stretching and growing and finding its way into every nook and cranny of your life. It seeks to contaminate everything around it. If a healthy, just think about this in terms, if a healthy person comes in contact with a sick person, health is not transferred to the, health, to the sick person, right? That's not the way that works. However, if a healthy person and a sick person come into contact, there is a possibility that sickness can be translated to the healthy person, right? In essence, God is saying holiness can't be contracted, right? Like sitting in a church building doesn't make, that's what's the old saying, sitting in a church building doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car, right? You know, like you, you can't contract holiness. Just because you hang around with church folks, church folks, that came out weird, Church folks doesn't make you holy. This church building does not make you holy. And I can assure you that simply listening to me, however many times you listen to me, does not make you holy. 
I'm glad you do, but it doesn't make you holy. Sin contaminates everything it touches. Sin spreads like dirt, and and it gets in every place. You're like, how did that get? It's not even, it, it just gets in everything. Regardless of how well you clean your house, it won't take long before there's some piece of dirt, more than probably a piece of dirt, that is needing to be cleaned again. And the same is true in our lives. One act of obedience, one prayer, or going to church however many times, that's, that's not what makes us holy. We are called to tap into the holiness of God through our connection with Him and to live lives that are holy, not just come into what we deem to be holy places or do holy things. Doesn't matter how, how nice we look or, uh, you know, how many times we take communion or whatever, how much money we put in the offering. Th- those things are, you know, you don't rack up your holiness chart by doing, you, you do those things out of love and, and because of what you've been given, but they're not what makes us holy. God's desire for us is to be connected to him and for him to purify our hearts and then for us to live out of that godly lives, holy lives in every aspect of our lives. And God is telling the people through the prophet Haggai that just doing the work of God isn't enough. The people thought that, okay, we've started rebuilding the temple. See, we're doing some good things. But God says, no, it's more than that. You're continuously needing to be transformed and renewed and sanctified and sin is to be purged out of your life. God's saying, just rebuilding my temple, that's not enough. That's not really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a heart transformation. Because in God's sight, it wasn't just their actions that counted. God wanted their hearts to be pure. It's not just about doing the right things. It's on the inside is what really, really counts. And so God says, prioritize what's important. Put aside your differences. Purify your hearts. And then lastly, Haggai's final message to the people and to us. Place your hope in God's promises. Haggai chapter 2 verse 21, God says to Haggai, Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. As Haggai closes out God's word to the people, his final message is simple. It doesn't seem as simple, but it really is simple. He wants to remind the people of what is true and what is real. And God, throughout his word, no matter what his people have done, no matter what roads they've found themselves down, no matter where they've been, he has always had a covenant love with his people. And today, we will always have the promise of salvation. And tomorrow we will always have the hope of eternal life. And no matter where you've been or what you've done, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you always have the opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ and receive that promise and hope. It may be small, but this little book of Haggai has some big things to say to us about life and what God desires of us. And Haggai's messages of prioritizing what is important and putting aside our differences and allowing God to purify our hearts and placing our hope in his promises are still just as applicable to us today as they were 2,500 years ago. 
And just like the Israelites 2,500 years ago, God calls you and me to those same things, to live a God-centered life where we're putting first things first. That's the title of the message. Are we putting first things first? That's really what it comes down to. And prioritizing those important things instead of what's urgent, what's next on the calendar. To put aside our differences and to work together for the glory of God, not for our glory or our needs or our desires, but for His glory and His purposes. To live holy and pure lives and to always hold firm to the wonderful promise of God's never-ending love and care for us. 2,500 years ago, Haggai stood before God's people, surrounded by the remains of what once was a great temple. And his purpose was simple, to instill motivation and instill desire within God's people to put first things first and to rebuild God's temple. And that's what he did. And in 516 BC, 70 years later, the people finished the temple. God's temple was rebuilt. Of course, Haggai, 2,500 years ago, was talking about a physical temple, right? Today, we live in a different understanding of those words. It's a different application of those words. For the people of Israel, it was a physical temple. For you and I, it's a spiritual temple that needs to be rebuilt. And so don't miss God's message. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So let me ask you this morning, what does your temple look like? That's really a question only you can answer. That's between you and God. What does your temple look like? look like? Are you building a temple that's pleasing to God? Or have other things gotten in the way of what's truly important? It's never too late to put first things first. It's never too late to prioritize what is important and put first things first and start rebuilding God's temple. Why not start today?